Mrs. Doubtfire 2, Lady Looks Like a Dude. Pick a movie to remake with an all-female cast. I'm Katie Rich, and I'm going with Jaws because I really like imagining a female Quint. Uh, I'm Joanna Robinson. I'm going with Escape from New York. Uh, Ditto because I want to see a female snake. I am Matt Patches, and I'm going to go with Top Gun, not because of the volleyball scene, but because I just want to see some ladies kicking ass like machismo style in a jet. And I'm David Ehrlich, and I'm going with Steven Spielberg's Munich, because ever ever since seeing what it did for Jews, uh, maybe it could have the same effect for women. Natalie Portman is going to be amazing in the female Munich. How are they going to do the pregnancy sex seed? They're going to call it female Munich is the best part. (laughs) No, like Femme Munich. Female. Female Munich. Femme Munich. Like Expendables. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good. Then, well then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine and, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. Hello and welcome to Fighting in the War Room, episode 34. For Tuesday, August 5th, 2014, you might have noticed already we've exceeded our usual quota of female voices. For the month of August, Dave Gonzalez is moving and he has chosen as his replacement the most able, best podcast replacement imaginable, Joanna Robinson. I'm so glad that you're on Fighting in the War Room. Welcome. Yay, thank you for having me. This is actually our female remake of Fighting in the World. (laughs) And yet David and I remain. Yeah, I was about to say. I don't know what that means. I'm not I'm not especially male. (laughs) (laughs) You think you and David won't get replaced when the women take over the world? I don't know what'll happen. Zardoz style. Oh god. Oh my god, if don't make me wear that outfit. If women and Ebola form an alliance. They'll be unstoppable. We're, we're screwed. Segment three of this podcast. Yes, all Ebola. Yeah. Segment three of this podcast will be entirely about Ebola and why David is so afraid of dying from it. <laughs> Ever since my dad took me to see Outbreak when I was like nine or whatever, <laughs> I saw a piece of gum on the ground afterwards at Stanford, Connecticut movie theater and was convinced that it was full of Ebola. Wow. <laughs> I remember that vividly. So do you this have like, a very bad monkeys. relationship with monkeys? Oh, I hate monkeys. <laughs> like, not only do they carry Ebola that one time, but also they just smell bad until they're shit at you. I, there's nothing to like about monkeys, and I distrust people who like them. So this is why you didn't like Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. No, fuck the apes. Fuck them. <laughs> like, everything. There's no, so don't much fuck Ebola. The apes. That's how you no, get it. That's, <laughs> that, that's how Ebola mutates when you fuck <laughs> the apes. Everyone be careful. Be safe out there. Do not cough on David, or he will scream at you and kill you. Hey, David, do we have any new reviews this week? No. No, we do. We have two. We have uh, one review called Spotify Playlist, Please, by Mafia Boy 701 who says, Although I almost always disagree with the opinions on the show, I can't help but come back for more because the amazing chemistry you all have. See, uh, it's okay. It's okay it's- <laughs> that we're snobs and we're losers and we're uh-huh. assholes. We're <laughs> on allowed to be that. Like the Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah, we are just like the Guardians of the Galaxy. What a bunch (laughs) of a-holes. On a side note, love the music choices between segments. Any way you guys can create a Spotify playlist from them? Dave, if you're listening, uh, maybe you can create a Spotify playlist. (laughs) (laughs) You know, the reviews also have music selections by me. Mm. Interesting. And then uh, also from Mrs. Sickboy who says, I listen to this ellipsis. (laughs) <laughs> and have been sufficiently convinced to leave a review. It's great. I added the emphasis there. You should listen to and rate, rate review as well. My work here is done. Her work here is done, but yours, dear listener, is only getting started. So please go to iTunes 
and leave us a review. It really helps us find new listeners, and we all greatly appreciate it, especially Joanna. It's true. I, I do. And I love how I claimed, I was like, yeah, we're a bunch of losers earlier. <laughs> I've been a part of this podcast. Immediate oh. camaraderie. <laughs> Please make most of your reviews about Joanna. Um, okay. <laughs> don't, do, don't do that, listeners. the immigrant because i've been a fan of james gray and somehow i waited a long time to see his new movie which stars joaquin phoenix and marion cotillard and jeremy renner it was at many festivals and then took a very long time to get to theaters it was the kind of thing that people had kind of put on their charts for oscar season last year and then got delayed until this year and then had one of those slow rollout releases where no one was really sure where to see it for a while i thought it was on vod and it wasn't and then i finally caught it on netflix last weekend which it's available to all of you to see um, it's James Gray's first, uh, you know, proper period piece. It's set in 1921, the Roaring Twenties in uh, New York City. And Marion Cotillard plays a Polish immigrant, which is fascinating for a French act- French actress. And being someone who doesn't really know that well from Polish and French accents, I thought she did a great job of the accent. Mm. Someone's welcome to, uh, <laughs> to question me on that. I, I have no like authority. David. I have no authority. Yeah, to I was going to say, David, despite my Polish, despite my Polish heritage, I am Polish, but despite my Polish heritage, right, I uh, I have no authority still to say whether or not her accent is any good. Her performance is not good, but that's neither right, well, here nor there. We'll, we'll get into that later. Uh, it's set in 1921. It's about this woman who immigrates to the United States from Poland. She is at Ellis Island and gets kind of caught up in the various bureaucracies that you've probably heard were part of that experience and uh, gets picked up by this guy played by Joaquin Phoenix. And he's kind of a pimp and kind of a confidence man. I don't really, I mean, he kind of plays all roles. He's doing what he needs to get by in this very strange society of 1920s New York and kind of brings her into his group of uh, women who are performers and then eventually prostitutes. And then uh, also in the mix is Jeremy Renner, who plays Joaquin Phoenix's character's cousin, who's a magician and it's kind of a bunch of people hustling, trying to survive in this world. And I found it very somber and very sincere and in kind of the way of all James Gray movies, very straightforward. I think Two Lovers got received a little strangely because Joaquin Phoenix was in the middle of his um, I'm Still Here bizarre press stunt <laughs> tour. Um, his and Shia it was LaBeouf a- phase. Yeah, he was in. A, he did Shia LaBeouf before Shia did Shia LaBeouf, um, <laughs> and Two Lovers was a very sincere romance, and I think it got received kind of strangely as a result of that. And I think The Immigrant has some of that as well, where it's kind of straightforward and plays out like an old school Hollywood melodrama. And that was really what I liked about it. And I've thought about it a lot in the few days since I've seen it. And I, I don't know. I feel like this movie got kind of overlooked for various Weinstein Company release Yeah, people gave up hope reasons. before it came. Yeah. Out. Because for everyone, the general for every, the general public, I'd say that's true. It's definitely been something of a cause celebre and the critical of. cognoscenti. I feel like it was at the beginning of the year, like right when it came out, and then you know, Snowpiercer came along as the other movie that got wronged by the Weinstein Company and then everyone forgot about it. But I thought the immigrant really had so much going for it and I was uh, curious if I mean, is, is it going to continue to be a cause celeb? Is anyone going to care about this movie? Because I feel like it really stuck with me. I, I think being on Netflix as an exclusive, as this weird kind of like it's still in theaters and yet it's on Netflix, um, 
you know, paradox. <laughs> How do you see this movie if it's in all places at once? You get confused. Um, that actually ends up giving it a lot of juice. I think a lot of people will see it. Uh, yeah, but of course, you know, I think... discover this, but unfortunately, perhaps not in the best place. I mean, right. if, if what this movie has going for it is this incredible palette, this sepia tone that he's telling the story in this gorgeous photography where all the light is blooming. I, I kept thinking of Avatar during this movie in a way that, like, the story <laughs> is extremely simple so that I can digest every moment of it with all this kind of creamy uh, photography. It's it's so delectable. But also the movie was shot on film and it really lent itself to being seen theatrically. Uh, and it, it definitely loses something, I'd say, a lot more than, than most films do uh, on Netflix, uh, which is a shame. But what are you going to do? I think yeah, there, there was definitely something about the cinematography for me in Netflix where the sodium lights that were being used to kind of give it the period lighting resulted as yellow splotches on the faces, which eventually, yeah. I mean, I really, it kind of broke my heart that I was seeing it that way. And then I restarted my TV and it worked out better, but it's weird. Like the variation in the projection quality on your television can be surprisingly uh, bad. In terms of it, it being rediscovered or enduring, I think you're right, Katie. And that has uh, an old quality or an out of time quality to it where it's so straightforward. I kept expecting some sort of twist, but I was like, Oh no, this is a very typical like fallen woman. Well, except she doesn't have like a Thomas Hardy tragic end, but you know, this is a fallen woman story that we're so used to seeing in operas or in 1940s melodramas. And I actually kind of loved that they just did that. Yeah. And, um, but and why does the 1920s always have to be filmed through some sort of sepia filter? <laughs> like, <laughs> I, everything I, was being lit by shitty lights, and uh, I don't think it like is. That. What was what what movie comes to mind most recently in the last ten or fifteen years that looks like this? That's evoking that feeling. I mean, this takes me back to the cinematography of, of the 70s and, and things like right, Godfather. I think I think a Boardwalk Empire. And this right. is more. This is more eroded by the Browns and of the past. It, the past seems to be leaking into this film even more so than like Godfather Two, which this movie tucks. Well, especially into. yeah, and especially when you have people in the immigrant clothing that seems not Roaring Nineteen Twenties. Like you say, Roaring Nineteen Twenties, and you see that sort of in the costume moments. But the way she dresses is even is like of a different 1910s. time. Yeah. Yes. I mean, my, my problem with this movie, I mean, I think it, it is very difficult to argue that it is not a gorgeously rendered evocation of this time. I mean, I think, you know, uh, quibbles about whether or not everything should always be filtered through this intensely sort of cinematic gauze of the past, although I think it's very uh, referential in the way that it's used here or not. Um, it's obviously a, a very finely crafted work. Um, I think Joaquin Phoenix is a bit transparent as everybody is in the movie, but does fine and compelling work. I have a lot of problems with Marion Cotillard that I've always had as with Marion Cotillard, especially when she <laughs> speaks in English, which she does for. And you just saw movie. her Darden Brothers movie, which I we'll talk about did. Uh, she is phenomenal in that. But, Interesting. Uh, uh, yeah, that uh -huh. is. Uh, there has never been a mediocre performance in a Darden Brothers film. Is but the that, immigrant <laughs> gorgeously rendered? Well, <laughs> Jer Jeremy Renner is terrible in this movie because Jeremy no! Renner is terrible in everything. I think he's but bad too. He yeah, seems, he's very. He seems like a time traveler who. I thought Phoenix seemed my, like a time traveler. But just to go broad with this, I just my my problem with the immigrant and actually why I've seen it three times: once at NIF last year, and then sort of twice casually at home. 
is that I think all of these positive things about it, and I, I, I think I sort of try to engage with it cerebrally, um, especially as the, the ideas that are evoked by its gorgeous final shot, uh, less so by some of the stuff that leads up to it. And I, yet, for all of these merits, I find myself time and again completely disengaged with what's happening in the movie. I, I find nothing to really latch onto with the characters. There's no heart to it for me um, because those elements, the melodrama of them, uh, and I don't use melodrama in the pejorative sense here. Um, no, I think James Jarrett probably called this a melodrama. Uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, I think, but the, the melodrama of it is just not of the sort that I find engaging. And I've had a really difficult time since seeing it last fall trying to put a finger on what it is that I uh, find so distant about this movie. But uh uh, I'm not feeling it. <laughs> I'm Joanna, trying. I uh, I have no idea what you think of this because I didn't even realize you'd watched it. What did you think? Well, I I think it's interesting what David said, and I think yeah, if you're not picking up what Marion Cotillard is putting down, then then you don't have an in to this movie, an emotional in. But if you are with her, uh, which I was, then she's your center. And and the thing about jo- both Joaquin Phoenix and Jeremy Renner is I find them both to be weirdly artificial performance performers in everything that they do. Except for when Joaquin Phoenix goes very deeply weird, mm-hmm. I find him to be a, man, a very mannered performer. And so it worked with this character who's constantly lying and hedging and flim-flamming and the same thing for the cousin character. Like, I feel the same way about Joseph Gordon-Levitt. I feel like their one-step detachment from their characters actually worked for what they were playing. I'm not saying it was intentional. I'm just saying it worked for me in this context. Do you feel like you you kind of mentioned and alluded to, um, you know, your knowledge of opera and older film like this? Um, Do you feel like you had the vocabulary to watch this movie, that it might require a knowledge of the film that Gray is aping or, or... paying homage to when he's making this movie is does that help you enjoy it in some way do you kind of um pull back from the actual story of the immigrant and enjoy it on some sort of production level like it's a play where you can see it happening on inside and out well it might be and it might be that if you grow up on melodrama or opera or you know tragic 19th century novels and are used to that melodrama come to accept like accept it as, as a younger age, then maybe, yeah, then you watch it and you go like, okay, I get what kind of story we're telling here. It's not a raw to the bone story. It's, it's, yeah, it's a melodrama. I don't, I don't know. I, I love, I, I really enjoy two lovers um, because I think that it was the only James Gray film where he was able to sort of pierce through the veneer of the aesthetics and, and the sort of, reverential references that he's that he's making you know, as a sort of died in the wool cinephile that he is. Uh, you don't think but, the Yards does that? No. But <laughs> I also I, I also I yeah, like, I, I, I like struggle with James Gray's place uh in, amongst a certain critical circle these days as well. Um but that's neither here nor there really. It doesn't affect my enjoyment of the movie. But I do want to single out in addition to Darius Kanji's cinematography, which we've mentioned is uh, gorgeous for the choices that it makes, um, is Christopher Spellman's music, uh, which is uh, – there's a lot of period music that's used in the movie. But Christopher Spellman's score, I think, is far and away the most memorable of the music that appears in, in the film. And it's uh, sort of criminal that it's not available anywhere. I know. I want yep. that thing on vinyl. 
scores so bad. I wanted to be scratchy and, and blaring through old speakers. Yeah, we were talking about this before the podcast. It, it is gorgeous. And I'm glad that I've now watched it on Netflix because if I had overlooked The Immigrant and done like best scores of the year, I mean, it will certainly yeah. have no awards play or whatever nonsense by the end of the year, but it will certainly be one of the best. Uh, I, would like to, uh, I would like to emphasize to anyone listening to this that if you've watched old melodramas or old dramas, like if you've watched Rebecca, I think this might be worth a look. If you can kind of get in the groove of the old style of melodrama with modern actors and, and you can debate with me whether or not Joaquin Phoenix is too modern for the part since no one else seems to agree with me and I think that is true but watch The Immigrant it's on Netflix right now it's so easy for you to watch it's not even that long it's shorter than Transformers go watch it <laughs> hey, that's that's not a very useful benchmark <laughs> it's, I think it's shorter than Get On Up too so everything I think that should be a, a new selling point for movies shorter, <laughs> than, shorter Transformers. than Transformers sure is I mean so I'm old. seeing The 100 Foot Journey it's shorter than Transformers that makes me isn't it two and a half hours long still oh fuck is it oh stop that Jesus Christ. mini segment david or like has something he'd like to talk about david uh i think patches will chime in as well we're talking about uh studio ghibli or ghibli depending on uh how you want to pronounce it but uh the studio the, the venerated japanese animation studio co-founded by isao takahata and hayao miyazaki responsible for such films as princess mononoke and spirited away and uh the Wind Rises maybe, recently maybe the best on the podcast. Of all of them, uh, the Wind Rises. Uh, and The Grave of the Fire. Well, actually, they were a freelance company until Porco Rosso, uh, but even under the Studio Ghibli banner were made films prior to that that are widely regarded as masterpieces, such as My Neighbor Totoro and uh, uh, Grave of Fireflies, etc. Anyway, there were overblown reports on Twitter via a Tumblr post on a Studio Ghibli fan site yesterday that they were um, which was fairly a translation of an announcement on Japanese television so it right. had l- some legitimacy it had photographic evidence that something had happened right that uh, and something did happen yeah something we'll definitely there. happened that uh, something happened they uh, were ceasing production on feature films and they were going to go back to being a because the films were no longer as profitable as they used to be except for the Miyazaki films which cost a lot of money and gross more money but require a lot of resources we're going to go back to a freelance system that would sort of intermittently make movies um, but really that they'd be dissolving the Studio Ghibli banner uh, and that has since been corrected to say that they are essentially taking a, taking a moment to assess where their company is and where it's going the, the reports are you know, publicly available information that the company is not making money the way it used to. Uh, Takahata's new film, which is coming out in uh, American theaters on October 17th, The Tale of Princess Kaguya, which is just a gorgeously hand-drawn bit of sort of folkloric animation underperformed at the Japanese box office, which really hurt them. And now they have a new film out called When Marnie Was There that uh, does not have U.S. release. Uh, Although it's doing okay in Japan. It It is, but it would have to be doing uh, really absurd 
numbers, which it's not, to, to really resurrect the Really, really absurd numbers the being what Miyazaki's films do in Japan, which is The Wind right. Rises was the biggest film of 2012. I think it made right. like $120 which, million dollars in Japan. Yeah, which uh, 2013, and it came out 2012. But the, uh, no, it came out 2013 here, I think. No, it came out 2013 there yeah, as well. Whatever. Um, the It came out 2014 here, officially, but... Um, they are, it, which seems bizarre to me because if the movie is is making that much money, I understand that it costs a lot, and you can see it in every frame of that movie. Um, that still, it, it is enough to really turn the screws on this company, especially when CG animation, uh, as sort of generic and disgusting as it is, is so much cheaper to produce. Which is why Hollywood has gone and the world has followed in this sort of either-or mentality, where we can't have a balance between hand-drawn stuff and computer-generated models. We really have to go with one or the other and occasionally right. get a Leica film. David, <laughs> I want you to explain to me, I mean, you just qualified all the Studio Ghibli announcements with a lot of information. Should I be upset? Oh, yeah. I mean, but it's also sort, sort of... But be inevitable. hopeful. There's hope. There's yeah, plenty of hope. There is room the for thing hope. About, the thing about being upset is that Studio Ghibli, it's it's more, you know, in coming years would have or, or might still become uh, more of a reference to the movies that the studio was founded upon rather than what they're making at the time. Because without Miyazaki, who is retired, and Takahata, who I believe if he isn't retired yet, is uh, on his way out because he's also a bit older. Um, you know, what? like Goro Miyazaki, Hayao Miyazaki's son, he's made, he made... Uh, Tales from Arietti. Mercy was not a great Tales movie. Tales from Mercy is a disaster. Arietti follow is up, yeah. very good. Arietti but, is very good. Uh, but it's not quite at that level. And there are other... Uh, there are other people in Japan who are making hand-drawn films. There's Makoto Shinkai and Satoshi Kon died, which is a huge loss to this industry. But um, there's the guy who made the, when Momo was there and then the Wolf movie, which I saw, but didn't really stick in my memory, but I could appreciate for its technical prowess and heart alone. Uh, there is going to be you know, like th- this type of animation uh, is going to, on a, on a feature length level, is going to survive, is going to continue. And Studio Ghibli really is just an umbrella term for these two guys and some of the people they work with. And so if they're not making movies and the studio, the studio doesn't really need to exist anymore. Um, but, the, it, you know. I mean, let's not downplay I the think- fact that the artistic brand will live. And if you think, I mean, Disney had this problem too. Disney spiraled out of control and, and blew up into the ground um, around the Black Cauldron and resurrected with movies like Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast and Lion King and... Uh, you may not enjoy them, David. I don't know, but uh, it's certainly a comeback and artistically. Does so. David like Beauty and the Beast? I don't know. Something I don't know the answer. Yeah, I mean, okay, so we we can yeah. appreciate that. So I think Studio Ghibli is going to make other movies, and I think the key thing here is they're restructuring. When they talk about this, they're taking a break so that they, you know, don't really go bankrupt and start making when Marnie was there too, and you know, it's a piece of shit that doesn't perform at all. That's like dramatically void, and they need to go back and and find financing, and maybe that. Money could come from America, even like I imagine a and a like a dream world where Disney is just sitting on this gigantic load of billions of dollars, and just so that they can win 
animation Oscars every year, they pump financing, the very little money it would take to keep Studio Ghibli operating and making the films that they want to make that would make huge money in Japan, perhaps. I mean, it's a gamble, but that's the kind of thing that would keep Studio Ghibli alive, finding an outside financer. And it could come from America. It could come from all over the place. So, Joanna, chime in real quick. (laughs) Well, just the personal story behind this is really interesting to me because it's it's an industry built around two creative artists who have either retired or close to retiring. And basically, it's like an old story. They couldn't find an heir. Like Miyazaki wanted his son to be his heir, and then they had this big divisive split when Tales from Earthsea didn't do well. The other films did better, but it just it's clear that there was no one who had the same artistic talent or drive that they did, and it's almost like they don't want to sully the brand by putting it into the hands. That's me extrapolating a lot. That's me putting a very human uh, oh, story on it. I think that it. makes perfect sense. I but it's I just, a human story. Yeah. I you wish someone at Disney could feel the same way. Dilute <laughs> their brand by giving it to a bunch of people that they didn't feel shared their aesthetic or their work ethic. I think so. what's really important here, just to wrap things up, is that no matter what happens, the video of Miyazaki teaching people how to make ramen will always exist on YouTube. <laughs> His greatest film. <laughs> so David will always be happy, no matter what. Did you, Don't worry about him. David, did you see that um, the, the, the segment is over? But... Uh, the the Tumblr bit or some documentary or interview with uh, Miyazaki where he was like goofing about Studio Ghibli. He's like, of course it's going to close. Ghibli was just the name of an airplane. I pulled it out of my ass. Who cares about <laughs> Studio Ghibli? Like, of course it's going to be over someday. You, this is not a business. This is a horrible business model. He's <laughs> like, that's genius. Go out. Good and for play. him. As you might have heard, this summer's box office has been pretty rough, even though plenty of movies have made money, more money than you or I will ever see in our lives. It has not been uh, nearly as good Speak as last for summer. Yourself. Well, David's going to make $300 million this summer, but I was no talking about patches. other. Oh, yeah. Patches <laughs> is going to make $300 million this summer. I would summer. sell out for that much. Yeah, I've got my lucrative big bang theory money coming. I would be happy to sell out for three hundred million dollars, but no movie this summer has made three hundred million dollars. Which, if if that holds, if Guardians of the Galaxy does not make three hundred million, which I don't know, I'm no expert, but I don't think it will. uh, It would be the first summer since two thousand one in which no movie has hit that mark, which is causing a lot of people to freak out. David has said previously, I think maybe on this podcast, that it's all going to be fine because twenty fifteen will wind up being huge because Avengers two is coming out and the Star Wars and all of those things. I don't know. It's all going to be fine. I just think that the uh, what we have talked about this podcast on this podcast is the shifted emphasis to China, where movies are far more successful now than ever. Certainly. And that in America, the blockbuster model and everyone running to the theaters to see a movie on opening weekend is not going to last. But what it, what's interesting to talk about for me, and I've seen a couple of trend pieces along the lines of where women are saving summer box office because Lucy was a big hit and Maleficent was a big hit. And Tammy, surprisingly enough, has made more money than you think it did, even though everyone thought it was a huge flop when it first opened. It's currently the uh, 24th highest grossing movie of the year at $81 million, which is more than I would have thought it made. Um I think there's some argument to say that uh, female audiences have been driving some of these successes. But to me, this seems like the rise of the non-white male audience in that people are going to movies that white dudes who run studios don't think anyone's going to see because they're not thinking of audiences other than white dudes who are kind of becoming outnumbered. And obviously the, you know, what, top 10 movies all star white guys. But 
there's a power of other audiences that is starting to emerge, at least in my mind, counting women and counting Latino audiences and, you know, people who saw right along or really anyone else who's going to see the things that isn't what studios are, fe- are feeding out there. And I'm wondering if you guys think this is a watershed moment in that this is when audiences who aren't white dudes are making their voices heard, or if this is just an aberration in the summer when what the white dudes are producing are, are producing isn't that good. And the next summer it's all going to go back to normal. Oh, I just think that the, well, I, I, I don't know what to say about Lucy <laughs> other than the fact other that, that other than that, you love it. Other than that, I love it. I'm very, very happy and incredibly surprised that it's doing <laughs> so well. Um, and Lucy, which is at $80 billion domestically now is doubled its production budget. So and just behind Tammy, <laughs> just behind Tammy, um, uh, let alone its international, take. But uh, I do think that the major sort of four quadrant movies now have become, uh, to, I mean, this is not a, a negative thing at all, but be, as part of becoming a, a silver lining of them becoming blander, have opened themselves up to other audiences. I think that they are, um, they're not, their narratives are hardly inclusive of non-white males, but I think that the um, the Marvel universe and and other things like that. I think they're just they're not quite as uh, outwardly hostile towards other demographics <laughs> as uh, which is the as, best we can hope for, right? As as some other films of of its ilk in previous years have been. Pashas are women rescuing summer box office. Um, I I don't know if they're rescuing it because let's be honest, um, Transformers is still huge and even though people are disappointed by x-men and spider-man those are still huge and guardians is not uh, uh okay for women if, if we stand what do you mean okay for women i mean it's just not it's not as we mentioned in our review it's not doing women any favors right it's i think not. it's genuinely regressive yeah, i think women are worse off in the movies than they were this time last week um and i don't really see it getting better as we continue as we round out the summer here i I feel like hollywood is very quick to forget this conversation now what the 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 shining light and i'm really curious about this because i a lot of people were congratulating um shailene woodley this year because of fault in our stars and divergent and i wonder if one if she has anything to do with that two if either of those are really successes because of of uh, the female-driven aspect, um, maybe diver- there's a case for Divergent, but it's really just a pale imitation of Hunger Games. It's just like a carbon copy. It's more of, as opposed to continuing to expand and break new ground for women in blockbusters. I don't really see it um, changing up much of the model here um, and and wooing uh, male and female audiences because we're finally seeing a woman a woman empowered. And then Fall in Our Stars. Is, is a blockbuster of, of brands, right? I mean, this is not because women made it important, I guess. Female readers made that book important, but I don't know if female moviegoers, if this is like proving that female moviegoers are something that you should cater to with original stories or, or big blockbusters. This movie worked for how much um, the movie was made for and, and the brand power behind it. Clearly... Uh, Hollywood is listening to John Green because he is now a brand. So next year, there will be another John Green movie in the same slot as Fault in Our Stars, starring Nat Wolf, written by Scott Neustander and Michael H. Weber. Um, so this is the summer of uh, John Green and Tate Taylor. Right. Those guys will just make movies every year. 
and um, they they are some sort of brand now. But I don't think that's a female thing. But am then I, the, am I missing something? Yeah, here Joanna, you come from really... the you come from the world of people who read books, and you know a lot about <laughs> tell us why phenomenons like Vault in Our Stars. I mean, do you see the movie's success as being an exclusively female thing, or do you feel like this isn't really giving women any credit? Uh, for Fault in Our Stars, I, I I don't know that I would lay it exclusively at the feet of female. I think in terms of... Where does the blame go? <laughs> in terms of readership uh, demographic, I think more female females read that book. But just like, I don't know, any female-driven movie, it, it reminds me of like all the movies that they open, the Nicholas Sparks stuff that they open on Valentine's Day, not to lump the two. Cause I do think John Green is way better than Nicholas Sparks, but y- you have the women who go and then you have the women who take their partners, be their, be they men or women. You know, this was a date movie, a date weepy is what this was of, of the Titanic, not that big in scope, obviously, but of that ilk. But the thing that we're not talking about is Maleficent, which mm-hmm. is so high up on the rankings. And it's the number four you know, movie of the year. Exactly. And if you want to talk about brands, I guess you could talk about the Angelina Jolie brand, but she actually doesn't, you know, this is her biggest opening. And so then it's the, is it a unification of two brands, the Angelina Jolie brand and the, and the Disney brand, the, the fairy tale retelling ad nauseum that we're seeing. Um, but nonetheless, I agree with Patches that I don't know if the word is saving or women's saving summer, but I think the impact uh, is undeniable, and it just keeps growing. It just seems like we're talking about Schadenfreude, right? We're watching the failure of uh, macho male-driven movies, and we're well, seeing we'll see. what, as what a failure is there. To, what failure are you looking at? I'm looking at most of the May movies. I'm looking at underperforming Spider-Man, spi- but Spider-Man's kind of being shallow here domestically, and. But Transformers, um, you can chalk up to be there, done that. And I guess you could also say the same for Spider-Man. Edge of Spider-Man Tomorrow. Man has been so mishandled. What about Edge of Tomorrow? Edge, Edge of Tomorrow. I mean, I don't want to be a scapegoat for all of these films. But, you know, Tom Cruise has serious brand issues right now. And Tom Cruise, I think, is is one of those brands that sort of transcends male and female demographics. It's just a Tom Cruise movie. And I think that, that sort of goes all the way through it. And if the brand is suffering, then people aren't going to come out. Um, and the, the critical community couldn't do too much to save it. It still hasn't crossed 100 million in the U.S. Well, me, at a 178 million dollar budget. Let me throw this out here because I'm curious. Then when does this conversation become about women and and advancing something that people see to, as problematic in in Hollywood in all of moviedom? You know, people are are voicing this opinion at every film festival too that there aren't enough female directors, there aren't enough female driven movies. Um, what, but when does it actually become a conversation about uh, the women, the female aspect a- of the movie? Because we're talking about the stars, or even Angelina Jolie and Maleficent. This is a, this is star actress at the top of her game opening a huge movie. This is all for, her. For me, it becomes something, and I'm, I'm going to cede the floor to the actual women on this show in a second. <laughs> but I think, uh, but but for me, it becomes something that is more than just a talking point when the people who are doing that talking actually stop seeing the movies. I mean, you can go on and on and on writing about how um, Guardians of the Galaxy isn't doing women justice and Kevin Feige is saying, you know, is stalling for time and, you know, uh, Angie Han's great piece on Slash Film about all the time since the release of The Avengers that he's, you know, sort of just uh, tapped his foot and and delayed... um, Introducing a female-led, you know, Marvel superhero movie, 
but all all these same people are rabidly excited for all these movies regardless and are going to go see them and are not making their voices translate into actual dollars or lack thereof. And as a result, their voices are never going to be heard because Hollywood only responds to money and not necessarily outcry if their films are still performing. But, but- so. That's the good news is that what you have when you look at the, you know, the rankings that we're all looking at right now, when you have someone who wants to go make the next female-led movie, they can throw into their pitch, oh, you know, it's like Maleficent. And that means dollar signs or it's like Hunger Games. Or like Lucy. Or like Lucy. And it doesn't mean necessarily – I'm not saying that it's all good because that doesn't necessarily translate to quality. But there is a reference point of here are my data points. I know that this movie could make money because Maleficent made money. And you can't come back at me and argue that I can't sell a movie with a female lead in the middle of summer. But it doesn't have did. a female lead. It has an Angelina Jolie. Right. Like it's the same reason Salt was successful. There and is Lucy. not another – there's not another Angelina Jolie. What about Lucy? No, Lucy's Lucy – Lucy is a freak. You think Scarlett Johansson is that big a star? (laughs) Of course, at this point, no one did until Lucy opened. I mean, Captain America too helps, but I think yeah, but she wasn't the star of Captain. Lucy, Lucy, no one will ever understand how Lucy. Lucy is no, not that big of a success. No Lucy will ever understand Lucy story. the way that you did. Wait, Lucy. Right. Okay, Lucy we're, we're has painting made a false picture about how important this Lucy is. is true. Lucy, Lucy has Lucy made seventy nine million dollars. It was made for forty million according to Box Office Mojo, which sounds low. Uh, especially because it was Cinema Corps, uh, Europa Corp, rather, uh, their most expensive film. So that does sound low. But um, yeah, I, I, I think, you know, I hear what you're saying, Joanna, and I think that eventually they're going to reach a tipping point where those arguments are going to hold water. But maybe it's just what Kevin Feige's recent comments are making me think, or maybe it's just the fact that. Well, let me put, like, let me put this at you, David. 44% of the Guardian's audience this weekend was, they, they were women. So women want to see these movies that you're saying people should basically shun in order right. to make movement. How would it, how do you? Well, not necessarily. I'm just I'm just saying that these are two different things. The movies that women are going to see and the movies that positively represent women or make them the central selling point are different things. And you know, I think that if if in the vacuum, I'm not going to begrudge a single movie. I'm not going to begrudge Guardians of the Galaxy for for having a male oriented cast uh you know where it has more interesting speaking parts for for trees and raccoons than it does for women it's one trees uh i would i think groot is a far more interesting character than zathura or whatever the fuck her name is oh my god Uh, (laughs) comic nerd outrage right here Uh, i mean zoe saldana is just taking empty paychecks but the uh is a dc character (laughs) Um, is a dc wow and I, and I, you know, of course, the, I, the last thing I want to imply is that that women shouldn't entertain, like, see the movies that they want to see because they don't happen to feature women. I mean, they shouldn't be deprived of enjoying the same things that that other people do. But it, it is this thing of, of, I think, as a whole, not just women, but men as well, who go out and champion for for movies that have stronger female presences, ignore that the moment the movie is available for them to see. And, uh, you know, they stay through the credits and get teased for the next one. And it just doesn't really feel like change. And may, I think I'm putting a little bit too much of this on Marvel. Um, <laughs> but I, I guess we it can... It was probably going to introduce some sort of female-led superhero. Yeah, but it's, it's too soon to say. I mean, I, I when Joanna says, okay, you look at all these movies, and even though I can say Maleficent is an Angelina Joe movie, Jolie movie and Lucy's whatever, it's hard to deny that you, you have a 
reasonably strong and hopefully growing female presence at the summer box office and especially when you take off that misogynistic spin on how Tammy performed at the box office and recognize it for the huge money maker that it was um, you know you see them doing well but I guess for me I just I, I'll believe it when I see it actually borne out in yeah. in future results I should, I should I need to jump in here and quickly say before I get a thousand tweets being angry at me that I confuse Zathura for Zatanna yeah, Zatanna is the DC a, Comics character. I was going to say, also, Sprock is Zathura. Zathura is the sequel to Jumanji. I'm an idiot. I'm yeah, so sorry. Oh, no, I was thinking of Zarathustra. Oh, God. Now I'm going to get all the angry tweets. No, oh. Zathura. Josh Hutcherson is in Zathura, isn't he? No. Yes. Yes. Hopefully, yeah. Joanna will get all the angry tweets because apparently that's just what she does. <laughs> I'm an angry I was thinking of also Sprock, Zarathustra, also known as the title from 2001. So- I know. I just derailed everything. Another another female. It's not a female led or even a female centric film. But I do want to point out that, you know, a few of the other films on here that seem very traditionally bro centric, like Neighbors, has a great character for Rose Byrne, I thought. Mm -hmm. Um, Or 22 Jump Street. I love Jillian Bell's character. You know, I think that there are. Within seated within these very you know traditional male films, more interesting roles for female. Even if it's not Angelina Jolie in the lead, it's something. Yeah, but shifting. Jillian Bell is not going to get her own movie anytime soon. No, but think. what's super interesting about you Neighbors? Know Amy Schumer's getting her own movie. That's true. I'm very And Pitch Perfect, I suppose, is the savior to this whole thing. But what's well, super interesting about Neighbors is I think that its plot directly engages with this question. I mean, like the, the yeah. protagonist, who is a white male, is sort of wrestling with his allegiance. In the, in the movie to the sort of bro culture or uh, what role um, his wife, who is awesome, can sort of take in, in his life. And so the movie, I think, is, is very literally confronting this notion. Yeah, exactly. There's a, there's a conversation where she just rejects falling into the very stereotypical roles we see from like a Kevin Janes or a Vince Vaughn film where you've got – the, the husband who messes up and does this and the, and the shrewish wife who keeps him in line. And Rose Byrne's character just says, I'm not that character. I'm not that person. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking at this list now and I still think that the, one of the biggest offenders is Captain America, the Winter Soldier. And that it all, maybe it's just, it always comes back to Marvel. Godzilla wasn't any better, but of course, I mean, the case <laughs> no, Godzilla that, was that Godzilla is, uh, is not really about the people at all. Um, and I think when none of them are especially emphasized that it doesn't really matter. Um, and to, that- me, to me, it's not necessarily about tallying up like which movies have been better to female characters than others, but just noticing like what the power of a female audience can do. And female audiences are something that's really been discounted except when it comes to Nicholas Sparks movies coming out around Valentine's Day. And I think the summer has kind of spoken to what women are actually interested in seeing. And not, well, I mean, women, a lot of women saw Guardians of the Galaxy too, so it's not that monolithic, but... There the, is something to the power of women who went to see Maleficent. To, to ramp up here, to the two ladies on this podcast, what what are you lacking here? What what do you want to see more of in blockbuster filmmaking, perhaps, uh, in terms of women on screen or women in charge? Or what, what are we really missing? I guess my problem, though, is that I, like it's just the, the studios don't seem to have incentive to change when there's such a large percentage of their audience is comprised of like for Guardians of the Galaxy if it's 44% female and the movie is still this crazy huge hit and but is they completely do have an incentive to change how can you say that when just this week some because why I want to make a, a, a spider woman movie and i guarantee you 
the Spider whatever the Spider Woman movie equivalent is that Marvel makes will be have half the budget of a Guardians of the Galaxy and will take I so few risks because they don't trust like in right because they don't trust in those audiences because I think that they they say okay we can have this male centric film uh, where a woman is reduced to pretty much being a mouthpiece or even worse uh, for Peter Star Lord Quill um, and then you know they, it's such a monumental hit they don't they can just keep repeating the formula. Right, but then they can't ignore a Hunger Games or a Frozen. But Hunger Games, the first Hunger Games came out three years ago, and what have we? I mean, I just, I don't, I'm not sure. I'm not necessarily well, convinced that we've come we all that get, far. Well, that's I, no, I'm not saying we've come dramatically far, but I think you have to lay a lot of of the praise or whatever the blame at Hunger Games for opening up what it means to be a woman leading a film. It doesn't mean you have to be one kind of woman. You can be you can just take a male role and make it a woman and that's been the no no That's what doesn't like, happen enough. I think yeah. personally like I, I I think I mentioned this when we were talking about Lucy in our review that our colleague Amy Nicholson wrote an article uh, prompted by Lucy about how you know, empowered women are not just women with superpowers. They have to have something going on that, that, that matters to them. And I think how to do that is just take these male roles and just make them female. Don't right. try Which and is make why female Ghostbusters movies. 3 could be such a great idea. Right. People outraged by rebooting Ghostbusters with all women. I do not get that at all. Like, first off, how do you have such an attachment to this movie that is driven by bro-ship? Like, that is not what I see in Ghostbusters, personally. How do you have an attachment to Ghostbusters to begin with? I don't know. It just feels so <laughs> idiosyncratic to have a high-concept comedy with women in it. That's not something you see. Every female comedy... I mean, Bridesmaids was great, but it's, again, like, it's about getting married. It's, it's about relationships. Well, it's a relationship comedy. That's true. Like, get but, a woman in a movie that's just about, like, farting or, like, <laughs> about farting. Or, or you know, something zany. Something like Anchorman or something like any Will Ferrell movie. I would love to see a female in the lead of that. And Tammy is kind of a step in the right direction, to be quite honest. But Tammy strives to be too much of an arty-farty film, too. I think that the Ghostbusters thing, if you have a sentimental attachment to the original Ghostbusters, then the last thing you should want is a Ghostbusters 3, to be honest, because it's just going to be no matter what in that iteration. But if you just make it something else entirely, a la 21 Jump Street, which bears no real resemblance to its source material, then you have an op- like an opportunity for something great. And that's what putting women in that role does. It just erases the edge of sketch and starts again, you know? So I really wanted to close out this segment by mentioning that there was a huge missed opportunity in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles by not having the character Venus de Milo. Nice. Because she, she was in some of the television shows and books. And I'm like, why... I have no answer for why there isn't a female Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle. It doesn't actually. But, but why would she be? But here's my question: Why would she be Venus de Milo as a piece of art? Why wouldn't she be an artist? Why wouldn't it be like Artemisia Gentileschi, the Ninja Turtle? Whoa! That's what I want to see. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's actually a really good point. Uh, I mean, that's that's sexism as well. There's no there's no win here for anybody. I was just playing the unnecessarily spiky feminist role. It's fun sometimes. Just one of the guys There's a little something inside that won't let me 
Uh, well, that about wraps things up on FightingInTheWorm.com. Somewhere between segment three and this outro, we lost Katie Rich. Uh, not not forever, but she has become one with the computer. She's gone into the digital ether, and she is she's now... It's like the movie Sphere. No, I was going to say it's like... I was going to make a really nerdy anime reference just to continue the... Uh, do. <laughs> the streak. <laughs> it's like Lane from Serial Experiments Lane. Anyone out there who listens to the show Someone. picks up what I'm dropping down? Come on. <laughs> uh, but we will be back later this week with a review of, I don't know, it sounds like pretty much everything. Everything. A little bit of everything because we can't decide what release is actually worth our time. So coming this week, a, a, a moment of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, a brief mention of the 100-foot journey. Maybe we'll talk into the storm. Maybe we'll talk... What are you seeing? Uh, what if? What if? We'll talk a little what if. The one I love, perhaps, we'll throw to. Deep Sea Challenge, David, you and I should mention Deep yeah. Sea Challenge, joint James Cameron's latest a, underwater adventure. A veritable cornucopia. Oh, so <laughs> much. If you love you film, say. you've got to listen to... Friday. If you love Zoe Kazan's bangs, you've got to listen. Uh, you know what? I do love Zoe Kazan. I do, too. Zoe Kazan, fantastic. Big fan. Um, why don't we tell people where they can find us on the internet and get the hell out of here? Um, David, start with you. Uh, wow, I've never gone first I know. before. Oh, I don't know what to say. It's a shake-up. Um, uh, well, my name is David Ehrlich. I am the uh, editor-at-large of Little White Lies magazine. You can find me also at Dissolve and AV Club on Twitter at David Ehrlich. And at Criterion Corner, and you can find all of us together and probably better rested because we didn't spend all weekend moving on Facebook at Fighting in the War Room, where you can leave us nasty comments and tell us why you're never listening to the show again like someone just did, or more positive things, if that is your wish. Uh, you can find me nearly day, nearly every day on VanityFair.com. You can follow me on Twitter at JoeWroteThis. I do two other podcasts, one about television called The Station Agents, one with Mr. Matt Patches called Republic City Dispatch, and that's about it for me. Yeah. Yeah, where we talk about things like Buddhist anarchism and Gary <laughs> Snyder. And Obama as much as possible. And Obama politics, yeah. About a cartoon. Yikes. Uh, and I am Matt Patches. I write on the internet all over the place. Put it on mattpatches.com. And I'm on Twitter at Mr. Patches. And remember, fightinginthewarroom.com. Comment on all of our episode show pages and keep the conversation going. We have a phone number that Dave usually pimps, 914-410-6450. We love voicemails. We'll play them. We'll riff on them. It's a blast. And since Katie um, became... She, she, I don't know. She's Lucy now. Actually, she handed us a star That's what drive, I was and uh, we're only using ten percent of our brains. Yeah, she's gone onto a better place. Uh, I she, used about seven percent on tonight's <laughs> podcast. But you're slowing it's been down. A long, it's been What's a long the week? opposite of Star Child? Like <laughs> in the opposite direction. Earth, Earth adult. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> it's pretty. Oh, hum. Um, Katie would normally pip our Twitter at Earth Dad. Dad's my favorite 80s sitcom. We are ending this show. Do you realize? <laughs> Twitter. Bye. We're on Twitter, and uh, on Twitter you can answer this week's lightning round question, which is not actually a question. It is just pick a movie to remake with an all-female cast. And tell us why, because why, why should this happen? Uh, that's how we do it. That's how we, you should do it. And we will be back next week. Uh, no, this Friday. So much going on. We're losing our minds. Good night. No matter how hard I try to